Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today, before I bring you my distinguished guest, let's have a quick intro. On the 27th of February of this year, 2023, the European Commission and the Government of the United Kingdom reached a political agreement in principle on the Windsor Framework. The joint solutions cover, amongst other things, new arrangements on customs, agri-food, medicines, VAT, and in taxes for specific goods and services, as well as specific instruments designed to ensure that the voices of the people of Northern Ireland are better heard on specific issues particularly relevant to their community. In fact, the president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, had this to say. Today, we can take pride in the fact that we have delivered on that commitment. Because today we have agreed, um, we have reached an agreement in principle on the Windsor Framework. The Windsor Framework lays down new arrangements on Ireland and Northern Ireland. This new framework will allow us to begin a new chapter. It provides for long-lasting solutions that both of us are confident will work for all people and businesses in Northern Ireland. Solutions that respond directly to the concerns they have raised. From the side of the UK, it was very interesting to see how the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak touted the agreement. We get the executive back up and running here. Northern Ireland is in the unbelievably special position, unique position in the entire world, European continent, in having privileged access, not just to the UK home market, which is enormous, fifth biggest in the world, but also the European Union single market. Nobody else has that. If Northern Ireland is in, and quoting the Prime Minister, an unbelievable special position with a privileged access to the EU single market, why doesn't other nations in the UK can have that access also? Of course, this was happening before Brexit, but not anymore. So to have a perspective of one of the nations that are interested part of this process, our friends from Scotland. Today I bring you a conversation with Alistair Carmichael. He's a member of the Parliament for Oakney and Shetland since 2001. He's a Scottish Liberal Democrat politician, serves as the Liberal Democrat Home Affairs, Northern Ireland, and Justice Spokesperson. He also serves as Deputy Leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats from 2012 to 2021. We talk about the future of Northern Ireland, but most importantly, how that relates to a future of the UK back in the European Union family. This conversation was recorded live during the Scotch, Scottish Lib Dems Fall Conference last year, naturally, in Hamilton, where I had the privilege to sit down with other members of the party for conversations, including its leader and deputy leader, conversations that will bring to you later in this year. And this is all part of a mini-series on the future of Scotland, the UK, and the EU. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of March. But now, with no further ado, I bring you MP Alistair Carmichael from the Scottish Lib Dems. I'm here with MP Alistair Carmichael. Alistair, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be talking to you. Oh, it's a privilege to have you here. And before we go into the main topic of our discussion, the future of Scotland, but also that connects to what is around Scotland, and that mm -hmm. is European Union and also Ireland, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. What was the path taken to get to the point that we're talking now? Okay. Well, I am the Member of Parliament for Orkney and Shetland. That is the two island groups right to the very top 
of Scotland. Um, we're very different from the rest of Scotland, socially, politically. Historically, we were Norse, so we have more in common, arguably, often with our neighbours in Norway than we have in our mm. neighbours in, in Scotland. But I wasn't, uh, you know, I've done that for 21 years. Before I was elected to Parliament, I had a career in law. Uh, I was a, a court solicitor. Um, before that, I worked for some years in hospitality. I was a hotel manager. Mm. Um, but I am a West Highlander by birth. So I was born and brought up on Isla. Uh, those of your listeners who know their Scotch whisky will know <laughs> that some of the most interesting uh, Scotch whiskies come from Isla, you know, the most southwesterly of all the Scottish islands. I was born and brought up on a, on a hill farm, and I suppose not, you would say, a, a sort of intuitive political family. Mm. You know, my, my parents are hill farmers um, and have been for, for generations, but... Um, from an early age, and I mean a very early age, I've just always been fascinated by politics and political ideas to the point that by the time I was 14, I uh, had identified liberal ideas as being the ones that were that I could sit with most comfortably, so the freedom of the individual, the enabling power of communities. Um, as being the thing, you know, the things that really motivated me. And I joined the Liberal Party, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, now as a 14-year-old. Oh, so wow. now at, f at 57, after 21 <laughs> years in Parliament, <laughs> I can boast 43 years of party membership. But, you know, look, as you can tell, this is the fact of my, my third career. We all take sort of wrong turns in mm. life sometimes. But the one thing about which I have never had a moment's doubt uh, is that liberal ideas uh, and the you know the ideas of freedom of the individual, the enabling power of communities to help individuals to realise the potential of what they have, and the importance of internationalism has always been at the heart of my politics. And yeah, I've never doubted that these were the right political priorities for me and and. For the, the the country and other countries across the world. Let me do a follow up on that because that's really interesting. But was this self thought, meaning that your interest about liberal values and ideas, did you learn them by yourself, or was that an influence in your life? There were a number of different influences in my life. Um, my parents obviously were big influences. You know, okay. I was always encouraged to talk and to think and to discuss things. We, you know. My father was a shepherd. He then and then ran his own hill farm. Um, but you know, we would all sit round the dinner table at night, and you would mm. hear what it was on the radio for the news that day, and everybody talked about it. I suppose the biggest political influence in my life in those early years was Ray Meehy, who um, was then a Liberal candidate. And she did come from a long liberal family, but uh, she was the liberal candidate in Argyll, then was in 1987 elected as the Liberal Democrat MP for Argyll and Butte, and she served until 2001. She then served in the House of Lords later. And, you know, she I, I, it sort of gave a bit of structure to some of the teenage thinking mm. that, I, uh, that I had. And the... 
you know, one of the things that really took me into the Liberal family was the willingness of Ray and others, some of whom are still at this conference, we are talking at the Scottish Liberal Democratic Conference today, as a 14-year-old, not to talk down to me, not to patronise me. If they thought I was speaking nonsense, which from time to time I probably <laughs> was, they would tell me, but they would engage. And, you know, as, as I have then made a career in politics, and I've, I'm desperate to bring more young people mm. into politics. Um, I have always been very careful to make sure that uh, anybody who has an interest in politics and is going to talk about political ideas gets proper respect for the strength of their idea and not because of their age or their colour or their occupation or anything else. And I think that's one of the most important ways that um, we should engage with young people. So, you know... From time to time, I get asked the question, well, you know, what's, what do we have to do to bring more people into, a, into in, a young people into politics? Or, you know, what are the issues that matter to young people? You know, look, well, don't ask me. I'm 57 now. <laughs> go, and ask, go and ask a young person. But also understand that it's slightly patronising to talk about youth politics and young people's ideas because actually they may have different priorities, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they want the same thing. Uh, you know, it's about freedom and security and, you know, the ability to live their life as they choose. I really want to talk to you about something. You do have a connection with that because uh, you are the spokesperson for Northern Ireland with the Liberal yes. Democrats. And I already had a series of podcasts about the future of Ireland the island, mm -hmm. of course, with Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. I'm very interested to know your opinion, and this is a two-part question. The first is, how do you see that developing? Mm -hmm. And the second one is, what are the possible outcomes and how that relates to Scotland? Mm -hmm. Well, how do I see it developing? Um, the politics of Northern Ireland and the relationship with the rest of the United Kingdom and the relationship with Ireland is absolutely fascinating. It's highly nuanced. Mm. Um, and for me, it's also quite personal because I was born and brought up on Isla, which is the most southwest. So from my family farm on Isla, you can see Northern Ireland. Mm. You know, it's about 12 miles across the water. Uh, and when I was a wee boy growing up, and I spoke about, you know, my political ideas forming and the rest of it, it was at the time of, of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Mm. And to this day, I carry with me the memory of the late night news summary about half 10, 11 o'clock at night, because all our television was coming from Northern Ireland. Mm. I didn't get to hear about Scottish politics till I was well into my teenage years. Uh, all our news came from Northern Ireland, and it was, there was a shooting today. There was a bomb here. There was a bomb scare there. Uh, you know, such and such a person has gone missing because they've been kidnapped or whatever it was going to be. And it was an angry, divisive, dangerous politics. So, you know, the point then in 1997, when you got the Good Friday Agreement, working on the back of, of the efforts of John Major in particular uh, in relation to Northern Ireland, not just Tony Blair, I thought that was an enormously significant moment and a very precious, fragile achievement. And makes me angry that people 
especially conservatives who claim to be unionists, are so cavalier in their treatment of that very precious, delicate piece. Mm -hmm. I, I take some hope from the fact that the people still want peace. They've still got a strong enough folk memory to remember what it was like growing up in that violent and divided time that they won't allow the politicians to go back to a conflict. But how does it develop from here? It's far from easy to see. But, you know, this is a situation which Brexit created yes. and which Brexit was always going to create. So this is chickens coming home to roost mm -hmm. for the Conservative Brexiteers. Mm -hmm. um, because once you uh, take Scotland, uh, sorry, once you take the United Kingdom out of the customs union, particularly, and the single market, I guess, as well, then you need a border. And that border was always going to be either between the north of Ireland and the south, or it would be down the Irish Sea. And that was the culpability of the so-called unionists in the Conservative Party, that they were so determined to take us out of the customs union that they were prepared to play fast and loose with peace in Northern Ireland because once you make the border an yes. issue then frankly you are into dangerous, dangerous territory. How does it work from here? I don't honestly know. You know, I know that I speak to a lot of people in the uh, Republic of Ireland in the South who would be very wary about reuniting uh, the, the whole of Ireland and you know it would be very divisive within Northern Ireland if you were to reopen that particular debate but if at the end of the day uh, this comes back to the same arguments that we were talking about earlier about the structure of, of Great Britain and the United Kingdom as a whole if at the end of the day people feel that actually they are better served um, by a united Ireland rather than being part of the United Kingdom, then, you know, um, that would be a dangerous moment for the, the, the peace agreement. But, um, you know, you, would, you can't exclude the fact that people looking for a better system of government might one day turn to that. I think we're some time from that yet. But, you know, for as long as... Um, you have a, an unusual politics and an unusual political system, which is what you have in Northern Ireland. It was only ever supposed to be temporary, but we've kind of become entrenched in it. That's, that's a real danger. This is a fantastic point, because mm -hmm. one thing that is happening in Northern Ireland, and I know by just watching at the polls and watching not only the polls, but the breakdown of polls, and you're mm -hmm. talking about the youth, and it is my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that this is mostly a generational issue. Even, of course, there's always be pockets of people. Yep. We know that Shane Fein, mm -hmm. they're anxious to do that, actually, as SNP here in Scotland, mm -hmm. and maybe that will turn against them. But do you think that it's more of a generational shift and eventually... I think it's far too early to see. Say, okay. I do see a different sort of politics emerging in Ireland. And the religious identity, which mm. has always been the basis of how people voted, is loosening. You see the growth of the Alliance Party as, as an illustration of that. Um, and I think, 
you have to understand that for many people, having lived through the years of the Troubles, the, the, peace, the peace process, the, the Good Friday Agreement, that set up a power-sharing agreement within Northern Ireland, but with Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom, albeit guaranteed by a treaty between the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland, mm -hmm. was the stable option. Yes. And the danger that Brexit brings and Brexit has brought is that you remove that element of stability. And people, I think, especially in Ireland, will always want the stable option. Yes. And, you know, we have diminished the stability that you had from the Good Friday Agreement with uh, Northern Ireland, part of the UK, but a, a status guaranteed by, by two governments. Um, and that's a, a process that we're going to have to work through. And I don't honestly know where that goes. I do think that the, the status quo still looks like significantly the more stable option. Okay. So I'm not expecting any change there anytime soon, notwithstanding the position of Sinn Féin. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to a process designed to end a centuries-old sectarian conflict, which is essentially what you've got in Northern Ireland, you can never take anything for granted. Absolutely. And complacency is the biggest enemy of, of that process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the... The arguments of Brexit were essentially arguments of English, maybe in some small measure British nationalism. And once you start forcing people to choose between identities, you see, you can only be Scottish, you can't be Scottish and British, okay. or you can only be British, you can't be British and European, then that does get Absolutely. into dangerous territory. As a liberal, you know, I've got multiple identities. And I just, <laughs> I think it's one of the great things that uh, life has given me. I, I'm a, an islander. I'm an islander both by birth and by choice. Because I'm born and brought up in Isla. I live in Orkney. I represent Orkney and Shetland. I'm a West Islander. You know, I'm very proud of the fact that I've got Gaelic roots um, and I'm part of that culture. I'm Scottish. You know, and I'm proudly Scottish, but I'm also proudly British. And then when I go to America, I will sort of come out with something, you know, a piece of analysis of, of uh, how things work in America. And people say to me, oh, yeah, but you would say that. You're from Europe. Hmm. So, you know, they, they see us. And I think it's great. And I just don't understand the politics that somehow feels the need to say, you have to make a choice, you can only choose one identity, and this is it. I'm getting too much into your time, sir, and I apologize for that, but I have to I'm ask you... I'm enjoying the cat chat, so... Oh, yeah. that's good. <laughs> but I do have to ask you one mm -hmm. more question about this, and you can only talk about mm -hmm. yourself, naturally. You cannot talk about Scottish people and the Scottish uh, Lib Dems, but if Sinn Féin gets power in both sides of the island and they do push for a border poll, what would be then your position? What, what could you say to your Irish friends if they asked you? Well, I mean, it would have to be um, the Irish people themselves who would make Naturally, that decision yeah. if that ever happened. And, you know, before you get to that border poll, you go back to the constitutional roots, which mm. is the Good Friday Agreement, and you say, well, have the test been met, and the rest of it. What would I say? I would say that it's their decision to take. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I would hope that whatever they choose, they would choose because it was the best option for peace and stability, and it wasn't just an exercise in forcing people to choose one identity yeah. against another. You know, wherever you, you come across these arguments, um, the more I see of it, the more convinced I am that I am somebody who has at his heart political ideas, liberal political ideas, rather than identity. And that's important because you can debate ideas. You know, I might persuade you that some of my ideas are right, you might persuade me that some of yours are right. And we can change each other's minds, but you will never persuade me to change my identity because my identity is at my core. So if your politics becomes about something that's never going to change, then it does become loud and shouty and divisive and tribal and ultimately futile because these are not the things that change the problems that really should be concerning us about climate, about poverty, about inequality. You are a parliamentarian. You are in Westminster as an MP for Scotland. And there is this perspective that some of the political decisions made in the parliament, and also because there's an imbalance in power that results from the election process, and we can get into that. But also there's the the machinery working. For example, the UK Internal Market Act is an example of a decision that is harmful to Scotland and even to the entire United Kingdom. So we know now by our previous conversations that the Scottish Lib Dems would like to have a federal United Kingdom. But even in a federal United Kingdom, how can we solve then this imbalance? It depends on how you construct that federation. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are different models across Europe, across the world, about how you construct a federal uh, nation. Um, And, you know, some of these decisions still have to be made essentially by people in England. Now, I've always... Look, you say there that that the decisions of the Parliament in Westminster uh, are often bad decisions for the people of Scotland. That's absolutely true, self-evidently the case. But, you know, they're also bad decisions for my family in different parts of England. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, for generations, my whole family was in the southwest corner of Scotland. But now I have family right across the whole of the country. I've got family in the northwest of England, in, in East Anglia, in the southwest of England. Mm-hmm. And the decisions that are made there are as bad for them, sometimes even worse, than the decisions that are made for people in Scotland. Why is that? Because we still have in the United Kingdom a massively centralised system of government that so much of the decision-making is is made at the centre in Whitehall. Uh, And then what we've done, actually, is we have replicated the, the... Westminster Whitehall model in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, you say that the decisions uh, from Westminster are bad for people in Scotland, and as I say, you know, I completely get that. I live that. Um, But also, we now have decisions made in Edinburgh that are really damaging for the peripheral parts of of Scotland. Mm -hmm. So, you know... (laughs) There are two ways that you can you can 
you, you can deal with this. You can either say we take different principles into government, we have a more representative and a more participative form of government, um, which allows people across the whole country uh, to, to do things better. You, pull control away from the centre down to the local level, or else you just break up the country. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Scottish Nationalists want to do. But, you know, once you start that process of breakup, and you've, we've, we've done this once already, breaking up the union with the rest of the European Union, um, you see actually the problems remain, and you just end up then breaking up things into ever smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. So, to my look, your question about federalism, well, it depends on where you have the different units within that federation. Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland fairly easily uh, done. Um, and we in the Liberal Democrats were right at the heart of the Constitutional Convention in the 1990s yes. that set up the Scottish Parliament. Now, if I had my time again, um, I think I would be more anxious to make the case for the creation of a Scottish Parliament, which you know was one of the defining campaigns and achievements of my political lifetime, um, but to make it on the basis of better government rather than identity. Mm. Because you know it has it, it now takes us to a point in our political life, and this goes right across the developed world where identity politics yes. has taken hold. And I think identity politics is a dangerous mm. phenomenon. It's one of the curses of the 21st century. Uh, and it's one of the paradoxes of the 21st century as well. Because, you know, we live in an age where we have a globalised economy. And as a consequence of that globalised economy, people, goods, services, ideas cross national boundaries with an ease that was unimaginable 40 years ago when I was first getting involved in politics. But So these national identities should matter less than ever, but paradoxically they seem to have become more important for, to us than ever. So make it about the ideas rather than about the identity. And when you construct your system of government, say, you know, what are our funding principles here? And it comes back to what I said right at the start. As a, as a liberal, I believe in the rights of the individual. The freedom of the individual is massively important mm -hmm. to me. But I understand that freedom has to be meaningful because you're not free if you're not educated or you're not healthy or you're not even safe to go out your own front door. So that's why we all come together as individuals and we form communities. Uh, and we provide health, education, policing, transport, and all the rest of it. And then you build from the individual up into communities, into regions, into countries, and beyond. You don't stop. There's, you know, there, there is no point at which you say, well, we have exhausted the common interest between humanity. Um, so you start from a first principle as a liberal that says, actually, power rests with the individual and we give it upwards rather than being something that is taken from some 
behemoth at the centre and, and handed down to us. Sorry, that's kind no, of... No, um, it's fantastic. Yeah. And this was... Uh, it's supposed to be a podcast about the inner workings of Westminster, but we can talk about liberal values all, <laughs> all afternoon. But uh, let, 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 mm-hmm. uh, Alistair, let me stay there because you are inside the machinery. Mm-hmm. There have been some signs of some goodwill regarding uh, more of not independence in the way that mm-hmm. we're seeing, and that is Scotland being an independent country, but more of a progression to a more functionally independent nation inside the United Kingdom. Uh, the um, leader of the Labour said mm-hmm. that, also um, uh, former Prime Minister Brown is involved in that. Is there goodwill? Is there a, a, a path you see there? Or is this just like smokescreen? Uh, I think, look, the constitutional position uh, is evolving and it is a, going to be a, a constant evolution, as it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, you try some things, they work, some things don't work. Um, you know, I, I was part of the campaign for a Scottish Assembly in the 1980s. I was part of the Constitutional Convention mm-hmm. with the Liberal Democrats in the 1990s. We've seen the Scottish Parliament established. Um, some of the things, I mean, look, it's been a massive improvement on the former unitary parliament that you had uh, in Whitehall, in Westminster rather, but it's still capable of massive improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that has the Scottish Parliament has been used to do, and this has galloped on since the SNP took control in 2007, is to suck control, power and influence and budgets from local government up to the centre. So, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, the change I would like to see in Scotland is the end of the centralisation mm. process and a determined push to give power and influence back to local communities. Um, and, um, you know, so that that's true also of the relationship between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. I think the most important work in that at the moment is still to be done in England. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I think as I say, the different parts of, of England are as badly served by a highly centralised model of government uh, as Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland ever were. You've seen, actually, if you think of the response to the pandemic, some of the most um, uh, interesting interventions and the, you know, the most politically effective moments uh, during lockdown and the response to the pandemic came from the more powerful mayors in, in, in England, Andy Burnham in Manchester, for example. So um, the idea of a federal structure, I think that is something which we will get to eventually. Um, we may have to find some other name for it than a federal structure because, you know, it's not exactly politically sexy. It doesn't get people <laughs> out onto the streets. Um, but it matters. You know, I've got friends across Europe. I've got a lot of friends in Bavaria. Mm. So I see the federal structure that, yes. ironically, the United Kingdom was part of giving to Germany at the end of the Second World War. Uh, and the way that, you know, they've 
taken that structure not just into government but into economic development and uh, you know just about every aspect of life in Germany and I see that as a consequence the outcomes for people and communities in Germany are so much better mm-hmm. than they are f- for us in, in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. You already made that point a couple mm-hmm. of times but I would like to just reinforce this idea to our listeners because you do argue that Cities and communities in England and cities and communities in Scotland, they do have the same concerns. Massive, yes. You know, look, the, the problems of Dundee and Glasgow um, are very much the same problems as Manchester, Liverpool, Cardiff, Belfast, London. Um, and, you know, look, a, we have some very rich, prosperous parts of Scotland as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you'll find that the more affluent parts of Edinburgh, you have people who have a lot in common with the more affluent parts uh, of London or even of these en- other of these any city, any other of these cities. Uh, and, you know, the problems of hill farmers in the Highlands and Islands are pretty much the same as the problems of hill farmers in Cumbria yeah. or Yorkshire or Mid Wales, wherever else you want to go. But if your politics is all about dividing people and accentuating differences, then you lose sight of these simple truths. And again, you know, it's about the the force of liberal ideas, which should always be, I think, about bringing people together mm-hmm. rather than finding differences. Because, you know, the you never get people to work together if all your politics is focused on why we're different. Yeah, and it's way easier to destroy a thing than to build them and uh, with the basis, as you said, and yeah. very correctly so, with the basis of just uh, identity politics that it's a disaster <laughs> waiting for happen. This is a beautiful place for us to end our conversation for now. I would love mm-hmm. to have you back on the podcast. There's so much more to go into, but please tell our listeners where they can follow you and your work online. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I am on Twitter, mm-hmm. MP. Uh, I am on Facebook. I have a Facebook page. You, you will find me most days in the House of Commons where it's broadcasting. Or, you know, send me an email. One of the one of the things I would like your listeners to understand is that yes, you know, the United Kingdom has sort of taken itself out of the European Union, but that's not the end of the story for us, you know, and that there are still liberal voices in Britain who share the same values eh, and are very much, you know, cousins in the same liberal family, and eh, you know. We, we still want to be part of that wider European liberal family, even if we're not part of the European Union. I'm going to put all these links on the podcast show notes. I've been talking with the Right Honourable Alistair Carmichael. This was fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ricardo. I've really enjoyed the chat. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. Enough of some of the events organized by ELF for this month of March. On the 10th of March in Vienna, Austria, we have the Network Reception Alliance of Her Academy 2023. This Network Reception Dinner is organized for the Alliance of Her 2023 Academy Spring Class, and this is the second session, where in Vienna we're going to have political storytelling and communication.
The reception will be held on the 10th of March as a platform for the participants and partners to gather and exchange views and experience of being a woman in politics. Another event that I would like to bring to your attention, this one is going to be in Budapest, organized by the Fondazione Luigi Naudi. It's going to happen on the 16th of March from 9.30 to 12.30. We're going to be talking about promoting power purchase agreements to achieve the net zero target. Power purchase agreements, or PPAs, address many issues that are dear to us liberals, from combating legislative and market barriers through a transnational and supranational perspective to ecological challenges and economic savings. This project intends to investigate the legislative and market framework for PPAs in different EU member states to identify best practice for the diffusion of these agreements and to contribute to the EU debate on climate policies. And on a personal note... I'm going to be present at this event since I am the author of the potential that Portugal have for power purchase agreements to the European Union. So I'm very, very honored to be invited by the Fundazione Liginaudi to be an author and a participant in this event. And then I'll tell you all about it here in the podcast. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.